Welcome to the Mom Powerment Podcast. This is the place where we help parents live a happy, healthy life with their kids, even when they are experiencing their most challenging behaviors. We're going to show you how to connect with your child and help them in their most difficult moments as we hear from experts in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Jakubowski, an international speaker, public school principal, and former struggling student. The Mom Powerment Podcast equips parents with science-based strategies to help you live a happy, healthy life with your kids. Welcome. It is a true honor to have Dr. Stuart Ablon join us today. Dr. Ablon is one of the world's top-rated keynote speakers in the academic arena and the author of three books. He is associate professor at Harvard Medical School, founder and director of Think Kids, a program at Massachusetts General Hospital, the number one ranked department of psychiatry in the United States, and is a teaching hospital of Harvard Medical School. Dr. Ablon, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Karen. So back in, I want to say 2013, 2012, I attended a conference in Delaware and there were six school districts recommend, um, got together for this training that you came and did for us. And there were teams from each school district that showed up. And I am so grateful that I was a part of the team um, that sat there that day because you talked about a collaborative problem solving process that could help shift and change how we have always ever treated kids with challenging behaviors. And it forever changed how I assessed and worked with supporting kids with needs or with behavior referrals. And so as we start maybe in a nutshell, I know it's more than just a nutshell, for our listeners, could you just sort of break down briefly what this collaborative solving problem approach is? Sure. And and first, let me just say, um, you know, somebody who travels around doing a lot of teaching, when you hear that um, uh, something you did a number of years ago had such an impact on somebody who is then sharing it with lots of other people and education and parents, you know, that's why I do what I do. So, uh, so I was thrilled uh, to, to hear that it had such an impact. And, uh, you know, as you and I were talking about beforehand, I think the reason that it resonates so much with many people is that what we teach is really a mindset shift when it comes to understanding why kids exhibit behavioral challenges in the first place. And whether that's at home, school, anywhere, and to be honest, it's not just kids, it's us adults too. Yeah. You know, the, the conventional wisdom is when somebody's misbehaving, it's that they have the ability to behave better, but they're sort of not trying hard enough, if you will, to behave better, that, yeah. um, you know, it, it, that people misbehave on purpose. Um, in other words, they're, they're challenging in order to get stuff or, or get out of stuff. Uh, and our work is really helping people to see that that's actually wrong, <laughs> that um, kids who uh, exhibit chronic behavioral challenges, they actually don't lack the will to behave well. What they lack are the skills to behave well. And that actually getting around the day successfully without exhibiting behavioral difficulties requires lots of skill, neurocognitive skills or thinking skills. And kids who struggle with their behavior have been shown to struggle with these skills. So it's about skill, not will. That's sort of the foundation of everything that we share. Yeah. And can this approach work for a parent when their child is having a meltdown or a tantrum even? 
Uh, well, sure. I mean, you know, first of all, all kids and even us adults, we can have uh, tantrums sometimes, and it can help with anyone having a tantrum. But kids who really struggle with their behavior and have lots of tantrums or severe tantrums or tantrums much past the age that you expect kids to have tantrums, absolutely, it can help. Uh, one big uh, sort of clarification that I'll, I'll point out is, you know, there's not any great magic in the midst of a meltdown that somebody's having, um, because when somebody has a meltdown, the smart part of their brain is basically offline, you know, what we call our, our prefrontal cortex, the, the part of a brain that we use those skills I was talking about, skills like flexibility and frustration tolerance and problem solving. Uh, you know, when we're flooded by emotion, that part of our brain is, is not accessible and we're sort of responding much lower down in our brain. And so there's no great magic in the heat of the moment once somebody is melted down. We can talk about some strategies that may help. But actually, it's pretty predictable the kinds of things that cause meltdowns in the first place. And so, you know, you, uh, the first thing you want to do is you want to make a list of what are the things that trigger a kid or anybody else's meltdowns. And you'd be surprised. You can make a very predictable list. And the nice thing about that is then what's the worst time to work on a predictable problem? Right when it's happening. If you've made it predictable, you've got a list of the predictable things that are going to likely end in meltdowns today, um, start working on those proactively when they're not occurring because the, you, your kid's going to have more access to the smart part of their brain to be able to collaborate to solve the problem with you. And so sometimes, I mean, at this point, a lot of parents, adults, families are home with their kids for more portion of the day than they are when they're in school. And maybe there's moms listening to this podcast and, and they are seeing the, the tantrums and the meltdowns more frequently, more often. And so you're saying it's not the best time in that moment to start working on that skill or because our natural reaction is kind of raise our voice a little bit. We're frustrated. We feel the heat rising. Um, so help us just briefly help us walk through like what, what a mom could maybe take away from this conversation and like start trying the next time her child does this say in the next day. Well, and first let me point out that right now at this uh, moment in time in the midst of a pandemic, the level of stress that everybody's under is significantly increased. We are all needing to use our skills at being flexible and tolerate frustration and problem solving much more than we had to pre-pandemic. And when you have uh, you know, families who are under a lot of stress to begin with, the stress right now is enormous. And ironically, it's hardest for us to access those skills when we're stressed. So very challenging time, but that's even more reason why you don't wanna try to do problem solving when your kid is what we call dysregulated in the midst of a meltdown. And look, we're human. When our kids get dysregulated, we get dysregulated too, and then it's off to the races, okay? Yeah. Yeah. So what I would say is first make a list of what are the predictable problems that are leading to these meltdowns. And it's going to depend on the age of the kid, the circumstances, you know, whether this is getting out of getting out of bed in the morning, whether it is a choice of food, whether it's bedtime, whether it's how much screen time, whether it's whether they're logging on to Zoom for their classes, whether they're adhering to social distancing restrictions, you know, you name it, um, whether they're doing their homework, all kinds of things. You want to make that list. And then you know, one of the things, and you're familiar with this, that we like to tell parents or anyone else uh, for that matter, is whatever problem you have, you only have three options at the end of the day. You can try to make the kid do what you want them to do. You can try to solve the problem together with the child, or you could decide to drop it for now and sort of handle it the way the kid wants it handled. And in this approach that we teach, we call it collaborative problem solving, 
we call these your three plans to make it easy. So you can make a game plan. If you're a two-parent household, you can make a game plan together. And what that means is make that list of problems and say, all right, how are we going to handle these? Are we going to use plan A, we call it, which is when you try to impose your will and make a kid do what you want them to do? Are we going to use plan B, try to work together to solve a problem with the kid? Or are we going to decide for now, not forever, <laughs> uh, but to use plan C for now with this and sort of drop that expectation or let the kid handle it how we want, how, how they want it handled. And that's your first order of business is prioritizing. You know, uh, what are you working on? And what are you not? Because if it's, you got big, bigger fish to fry, you might want to drop some things for now, especially in the midst of a pandemic. Plan C for now. Some things you may decide, you know what, we're going to try to impose our will here. And I would say, okay, but just be prepared because those are the times where it's going to get ugly on you. And there's no skill building that goes on when we try to impose our will upon kids. And then what you say is, well, my last option is plan B, we call it, trying to solve a problem together with our kid. And I would say, pick one or two problems for starters. I'd suggest picking easier ones first, what I call sort of lower hanging fruit on your list of predictable problems, and try to solve that problem proactively. That means before it happens again, catch your kid when they're calm, when they're accessible, and when you've had some time to think about this and try to have a problem solving conversation in advance. And I think what's probably gonna be helpful for moms and dads out there is to talk about exactly what that problem solving conversation looks like. Uh, because the way most of us parents try to problem solve with our kids, I would actually call tricky plan A, not plan B. And so um, maybe one of our listeners has a child and when they act out or they get in trouble at school or display unexpected behavior, we use everything we know, rewards, we try the punishment, we try the incentives. And what's your thought on those strategies? So, so those are versions of plan A. Because uh, they're just using rewards and consequences and things to try to impose our will, to pull off imposing our will. And look, I'm not allergic to rewards and punishments, but what I'll tell people is use them for things they're good at, not for things they're not good at. Um, if your kid just isn't trying hard enough or doesn't know what you want them to do, a reward or consequence could work. Um, but if it's anything other than that, you're probably barking up the wrong tree with rewards and consequences. And, and a good example to go back to what we said before, what, what could it be besides they're not trying hard enough? It could be they lack the skill, not the will to handle these kinds of situations. And there's nothing about rewards and consequences that are going to help build neurocognitive skills that people need to handle problems. So, you know, I, uh, especially with a kid who struggles a lot with meltdowns, I would, um, <laughs> I'd, I'd be careful because, uh, you know, all the research shows if you've got somebody who struggles a lot with their behavior, they're probably struggling with skill, not will and rewards and consequences. A won't work and B might make matters a lot worse. Mm. Can you help us understand what you mean when you say bad behavior in quotes isn't about lack of will, but rather the lack of skill, which you touched on um, already and maybe going into that first step, uh, that big, huge uh, foundational pillar of empathy. Sure. You know, when I say it's about uh, skill, not will, what I mean is that, uh, uh, look, we can, we can sort of liken this to a learning disability. Okay. When I was in school, I date myself here, but if we, uh, you know, went back 40 years in time to when I was 10 years old, uh, if I struggled to read compared to my peers, people would not have thought I had a learning disability 40 years ago they would have thought that I was lazy or dumb. 
And that would have been sadly ironic because guess who tries harder than anybody else to read? The kid to whom it doesn't come naturally. Now, thank goodness, fast forward to 2020, and we've got a better handle on things like reading and math and writing disabilities. But what we don't have a good handle on still is what I call learning disabilities in other areas like flexibility, frustration yes. tolerance, problem solving. So we still assume that kids who struggle with those skills aren't trying hard enough when it's ironic. They're trying harder than anybody else because it doesn't come to them naturally. Yeah. You know, well-behaved kids don't try very hard to behave well. It comes easy to them. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I mean when I say it's about skill, not will. Um, it's not that these kids aren't trying hard to behave themselves. They're trying right. hard than anybody else. They're struggling with skill. And I think, you know, your second part of your question was, let's talk about empathy. And, uh, you know, what I referenced a few minutes ago, plan B, what our shorthand for collaborating to solve a problem with your kid, it starts with empathy. There's actually, there's three ingredients to problem solving using plan B. And the first ingredient is empathy. And I think empathizing with our kids is really hard because I think we think empathy often means like showing we care or sympathizing. And that's actually not what empathy is. Empathy is trying to understand. And so when I teach people to do plan B, I say to people, your job in that first ingredient of plan B, the empathy ingredient, is to basically be a detective, to work really hard to try to understand, there's that word, your kid's concern or perspective about the problem you're trying to solve or what's hard for them about that situation. You want to get their point of view on the table first. And we tell people, you can't move on in plan B until you understand the child's concern first. Then and only then do you move to the second ingredient where you put your concern on the table. And I often like to demonstrate this with my hands because when I put both my hands up like this, what I'm trying to indicate is it's only plan B if you have two sets of concerns on the table. Um, and once you understand the kid's concern and your concern, you can move to the third ingredient which is where you invite your child to problem solve with you. To solve that problem, this is a really important phrase, in a mutually satisfactory way. In other words, a way that addresses their concern and your concern. And most of us parents, we are guilty of when we invite kids to problem solve with us, we usually invite them to address our concerns. How can we come up with a solution that works for us which is what I call tricky plan A. If it's really plan B, it's how can we come up with a solution that works for you and for mom and dad and is realistic and feasible? Well, I'm going to step back to where you were talking about the learning disability. We're so good nowadays that, oh, wow, you struggle. You, you didn't meet that, t that test that we were all taking. Like, wait, let's assess and just see maybe there, you know, is something else inhibiting you. And what I found was, so when I, when I came and took your training, I was a child study team facilitator in two elementary schools. And so we're a problem solving team. So we get all the problems from the teachers and it was the kids who don't have an IEP because they have their own problem solving team that writes their supports and plans individualized. And they didn't qualify for a 504 because those have their own accommodations to support those kids scripted. And it was this these students right in the center who had a variety of needs, behavior issues, academic problems, uh, you know, organization skills, was, weren't doing their homework, wasn't bringing their backpack to school, looked like they didn't care, looked like 
it's hard because sometimes they look like they they're doing it on purpose and they really mean to not, you know, uh, listen and follow directions and do what we're supposed to be doing, expected behaviors in the classroom. And those were the ones who I started using your collaborative problem solving process with. And when we got them to, um, I love the question you have us ask a very, I love the, the even tone of, you know, I saw you didn't bring your homework in and you left your book back at home. No, no, no punitive, no looking down, not talking down to them. And your famous question, which I think people are going to put on a shirt for me when I retire, what's up with that? And it's so disarming and it's hard to wait that impregnable pause forever but eventually, these kids would come out with things like, well, when I'm at center time, it's too distracting. I, I, I can't focus. So he's up and running around and looking like the fool who can't sit down and get his work done properly. And then when you asked him to problem solve, when I would do that, and he said, maybe I could try headphones. And the teacher looked at me, thought I had like two heads. Because to us, we're like, well, that won't work. Well, that's just a crazy idea. But your process, as as crazy as it feels in the moment and so different, like you said, is the biggest mind shift we will ever need to take probably. But if we just go with it, and if it's okay with me and the teacher and the kid to try that, um, I don't want to keep talking, but that's what was so incredibly powerful that I found. Well, and a couple of important things you're highlighting there is that you want to remain open-minded and curious. Okay, If you've ever heard the phrase, uh, be curious, not furious, and that's really hard to do in the heat of the moment, but this Very is why hard. I recommend doing this plan B thing proactively because you can do just what you said. You can sort of bring up a problem neutrally and say, I just want to understand. Can you fill me in? What's going on with that? And, you know, most kids are going to assume that you're doing, you're about to head down some plan A path. So you might need to remind them. You might need to say, hey, don't worry, you're not in trouble here. That's not what this is about. I'm sure there's a, a good reason this isn't going so great, and I just want to understand so we can work on it together. And one of the nice things I think about this process is you can be totally transparent with your kid and let them know, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to understand where you're coming from, I'm trying to hear you out, and I hope you're going to do the same with me. And then we're going to work together to try to solve the problem in a way that works for both of us. And you know, you don't lose any power, you don't lose any authority doing Plan B because you're still aggressively trying to pursue your concern and get it addressed. But what's different about this process is you're also prioritizing, understanding, empathizing with your child to get their perspective on the table. And it's going to lead you, as you just said, to some flexible, novel solutions. And I think one of the great things about this process is not only does it reduce behavioral challenges, but when you do this process again and again and again with kids, both what our research has shown is both the kids and the adults start to build our skills. Those skills in areas like flexibility and frustration tolerance and problem solving, we build those skills by practicing repetitions of this process. And, and that's one of the most exciting findings we have. And I also love that because it builds the skill of problem solving, which you would say to any parent these days, who doesn't want their kid to be a good problem solver? And you're teaching them the very skill that they're going to use for the rest of their life. That's right. 
You know, we're talking a lot about kids who struggle with their behavior uh, right now, but let's be clear that, you know, schools uh, throughout North America and beyond these days talk a lot, as you know, about uh, what people call 21st century or future ready skills or critical thinking, social emotional skills. And they are all creativity. You got it. Creativity, critical thinking, problem solving, empathy, flexibility. They're all the skills that actually we model for kids and help them practice when we walk through problem solving in the ways we've talked about. That's why I just love this process so, so much. Um, so you say none of us act out on purpose, which is so hard to believe in that moment. And when that, you know, it, they just, you know, just hit my last nerve and, you know, the frustration rises. How do we begin to change our thinking? Well, yeah. So, you know, um, one of the things I'd recommend to all of us is, it's helpful to sort of uh, have a mantra of sorts that you can sort of keep in the back of your head and repeat to yourself to sort of keep your honest here. And and the mantra um, that I'm going to suggest is sort of the philosophy behind the, all this work. And it's a, it's a simple philosophy. And it goes like this. Kids do well if they can. I love that. Kids do well if they can. Not kids do well if they want to. You see, you believe kids do well if they want to. You're going to assume your kid isn't doing well. It's because they don't want to. And now you're going to go be in the business of trying to make your kid want to do well. You know what? As you were just pointing out, Karen, I don't think I've ever met a kid who prefers doing poorly to doing well. I think all kids want to do well. And so if they're not doing well, it can't be as simple as they're not trying hard. enough. So remember, kids do well if they can. And if they're not doing well, you know what? We know why. And there's actually 50 years of research in the neurosciences right now that has shown beyond the shadow of a doubt that these kids struggle with skill, not will. Any of us when we're struggling with our behavior. So I think it's just really essential to sort of repeat that mantra, put it up on the fridge. Kids do well if they can. Uh, This is about skill, not will. That'll keep you in the mindset you need to be able to practice what we've been talking about. Okay, so you're going to have to help us all with this one because I think we've all done it. We use, and I referenced before, the incentives, the rewards, the punishment. Well, how about the behavior contracts, token systems that all we end up coming up with at times is trying this over and over and revamping and editing it. How many times have we edited these? And a variety of motivational activities. You say they don't work and often make things worse. Why and why don't they work? Well, the reason they often don't work is because they're barking up the wrong, what I call therapeutic tree. I mean, if a kid just wasn't trying hard enough and just needed incentive, then they'd work. And sometimes occasionally with easy kids, temporarily they will if all a kid needs is a nudge. But if something else is getting in the kid's way besides a lack of motivation, we wouldn't expect it to work. And, uh, you know, um, reward and punishment programs were never intended to build complex skills. They were never intended to help kids stay calm, who have a hard time staying calm. They were never intended to build relationships. And I want to be clear, I'm not blaming them. I mean, it's actually, it's not the fault of reward and punishment programs. It's actually our fault for using them for things they were never, ever intended to be used for. And then we're actually surprised when they don't work and When I said they make matters worse, what I mean by that is two things. First of all, there have literally been thousands of studies that have shown that the more you use external rewards to try to make somebody do something, the more you eat away at that person's internal drive to achieve the goal. 
There's like a strong negative correlation between external reinforcement and internal drive. So it's actually, it's ironic because it's the last thing we parents and teachers want to do is make our kids less interested in what we want them to do. But that's what we do every time we use ex external reinforcers. You bribe a kid with Xbox time, what's going to happen is they actually are going to be less interested in doing their homework that you want them to do over time. They'll be more interested in just getting the Xbox time. So that's one of the side effects. Uh, and, you know, we parents, if you've used a lot of rewards to try to get your kids to do something, um, one of the things you'll find is your kids will sometimes look at you and be like, you know, you ask them to do something, they'll be like, what are you going to give me? Doing? Right. Um, and that, pardon my language, but that pisses me off, right? Like, you know, if, if that a kid does that to us, we are, we're angry, but we got to sort of look ourselves in the mirror and where does a kid get that problem solving strategy from us? So that's a side effect. The other side effect, the final one that I want to note is um, kids internalize this stuff. And if we're constantly trying to motivate kids to behave better, you know what? They start to think that, hey, they must be unmotivated. I mean, why would my smart parents and teachers and stuff constantly be trying to motivate me to behave better unless they were sure that I wasn't trying very hard? So I guess I'm not trying very hard. And um, as my 104-year-old grandfather taught me long ago, he, he taught me if you give a dog a name, eventually they will answer to it. If you give a dog a name, eventually they'll answer to it. In other words, if you treat your kid like, they're lazy, not trying hard enough, unmotivated. Don't be surprised when eventually they start to look like and talk like and act like that as well. And so that's a major side effect, teaching kids something about themselves that uh, um, is inaccurate and not what we want a kid to think about themselves. Well, another thing that I love about this process is there was a student we had in, in first grade kindergarten would get in trouble, would steal things. We, we would talk to them and they just wouldn't talk to us. They would never tell us why we couldn't figure out. And I would use this process with them over and over again. But I always had a, the even toned voice and I always was calm and I never spoke down to him. And I never felt like I was like above him and, and made him feel bad. I believe when kids do something wrong, they already feel it. There's no reason why we should make it feel worse. I mean, I, I'm that way and I, I, I feel kids that way and treat them that way too. Well, so he was with us in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, still getting in trouble in third grade, did the same process with him, would have lunch with him just to connect with him, do something fun outside the school day where he was probably being corrected a lot because he just didn't always do the expected behaviors. Finally, when he was in about third, fourth grade, when I ever had to address him about a situation because I did the same process and he knew it by now, he knew I wouldn't yell at him. He knew I wasn't mad and going to be angry at him. It took like two or three years for him to finally, when I would say, what's up with that? He gave me the answer. He gave me the answer that when I called his mom, she said, I don't believe he said that. And I put the phone up to her ear and his, and he told her because I had built that. So there's so much to this, the relationship, the connection, the empathy, understanding, they have to feel that. And if they don't feel that from you, they're not going to give you anything. That's so, right. I mean, most kids, I think, aren't open for business and conversations because they think it's just a, an exercise in plan A. So they sort of tune out or they just try to tell us what they think we want them to hear. And it takes a while, as you're saying sometimes, till the kid really begins to trust the process and then also build skill. I mean, remember, if we go back to that learning disability analogy, like, 
you know, you don't, you, you don't teach a kid who's having a hard time learning how to decode words. You don't teach him how to read in two weeks. Like it takes some time. And, um, and it's the same thing with these skills. But again, if you practice, if you do a lot of problem solving with your kid, they will be practicing lots of repetitions of the, the very skills they need to be able to handle problems more independently on their own in the world, which is the big goal. So if you can just share one or two highlights of what the data is showing us about this collaborative problem solving process and the results of it and the benefits. I'm going to share two of my favorites because honestly, you know, there's lots of data on you decrease challenging behavior, schools decrease detentions and suspensions and um, all kinds of things like that. But um, two of my favorite things are actually for um, us parents and adults out there, what you'll see, I referenced one of these already, is it's not just the kid who builds skills. That when we adults practice this process, we get better at things like empathizing, perspective taking, flexible thinking. We adults, you can change the adult brain. You can teach an old dog new tricks. Uh, so that's one of the findings that I think is uh, is most exciting. Uh, I'm actually gonna uh, I'm gonna give you two more. Uh, another is a decrease in um, parent teacher stress. So and, and what's fascinating about this is even before a kid's behavior starts to change, our stress level decreases when we just embrace the notion that this is about skill, not will. When we approach kids in a more empathic way, we get less worked up. The behavior doesn't push our buttons in the same way as when we think it's manipulative and willful and things like that. When we start to see it through a more empathic lens, actually, everything is easier for us. Our stress level decreases. And then the, my extra uh, little nugget that our, our research is showing is that when you actually survey kids and ask them what it's like when adults use this process with them, they say uh, the, the research is unequivocal. Basically, the kids are far happier with how they are being treated. And we've done this in, in settings, too, where kids don't even know that the adults got some training, but we sample their, their perspectives before and after. And after they're trained in this, um, the kids are much more happy with uh, the relationships with the adults and how they're being treated. So um, lots of exciting. It's so exciting. Uh, I love it. To continue. And, and, you know, I think it's important to, to cite those things because let's be clear with all the parents out there, teachers, this is hard work. Uh, it is not magical. There is no magic. It's tough. Uh, it takes diligence. It takes practice. It takes patience. It takes perseverance. Uh, and it's hard for us. So, you know, I, I mentioned before, Karen, the notion of uh, kids do well if they can. Let's remember, parents do well if they can. Teachers do well if they can. We're all doing the best we can with what the world is throwing at us and the skills we have to contend with them. So we got to be empathic with ourselves as well um, and give ourselves a break when we're trying something new and hard like this. Well, Dr. Avalon, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy, busy schedule for joining us today. I loved hearing more about your work, your passion and insights to help parents, kids, and educators out there rethink challenging kids. It's inspiring and empowering. Thank you so much. We wish you all the best. My pleasure. I really appreciate the time and uh, being able to join you here. So thank you. Well, that's all we've got for this episode of the Mom Powerment Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. I can't wait to help you 
live a happier, healthier life with your kids. Click subscribe today and we can't wait to have you join us on our next episode. Thanks again. And remember, don't worry, be happy. Hey there, it's Karin. I hope that you're enjoying the show. And by the way, if you're a mom who wants to learn how to help your child when they're struggling behaviorally or facing challenges in school, get started today by getting my free short video course on first steps to mom empowerment. Go to www.educationalimpactacademy.com forward slash free video. If you're new here or you haven't done this yet, this is definitely the first step to get started in learning how to have a happy life and healthy life with your kids. So head on over to www.educationalimpactacademy.com forward slash free video and grab your free gift today.